The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are wrapping up our study of 1 John. I was going to say we got one more message after today, maybe two after today. I, I'm not, I, and I can't tell if I'm trying to drag this out because I don't want to end, or if there's really all this stuff that I'm seeing there. So, but anyway, I'm sad to see it go. But anyway, in, in one or two weeks we'll be done and we'll be moving on. So uh, we're studying the final section. That's what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. It's in chapter five, verse thirteen through twenty-one. And seven times in this section, um, in these nine verses, he says, we know. And there are five things listed here that John says we know. The first one is in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Believers, we know, we don't hope, we don't think, we know that we have eternal life. And what could be more important than knowing, having that confidence that you have eternal life? Now, let me ask you, just so we're clear on this, who can know that they have eternal life? Who? We. (laughs) You who believe. That's what he says. You who believe, you can know. So we know because we believe. Now hang on to that thought. I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. All right. But what do these things refer to? He says, I write these things to you. We've gone over this. Many people think that these things is a reference to the entire letter, making it a purpose statement for the letter. And they say the letter is all about assurance. And that's not what this is about. I think it's better to see the phrase these things as referring to what John has written about God's witness in verse 6 through 12 of chapter 5. John's purpose in this epistle is to instruct his readers on how to have fellowship with God. That's what this thing's all about. This epistle is about abiding in Christ. And it tells us how to do that. Then in verses 14 through 17, he talks about the second certainty, the certainty of answered prayer. He said, this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of Him. So He says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. When we pray according to His will, we know that God hears us. Now, do you remember what I said the word hears means? In this context, hears, it's akuo is the Greek word. What did I say it means? Oh my word. Okay, we're going back there. We're going to start that. We're going to start over again. It carries the sense of giving heed to what is asked for. That is, responding positively to the request. In other words, it, it carries the idea of God hears and answers. It's not just like, oh, I hear you, but I'm not paying any attention to you. That's not the idea. Now, in the final section, three times again, he uses the word know. Beginning verse 18, 19, and 20, we know, we know, we know. John wants us to be certain about these important truths. His closing comments aptly summarize what has been said throughout the entire epistle. He's reminding them of their privileged position in Christ. We started looking at verse 18 last week. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Anything about that verse seem a little bit difficult to you? All right, we looked at this last week, all right? And we said that the translations, many of the translations will add, everyone born of God does not keep on sinning or go on sinning. They're incorrectly using the present tense. One commentator writes this, sins in the present tense which allows for the sense of continually sin. No, it does not. No other text can be cited where the Greek present tense, unaided by qualifying words, can carry this kind of significance. 
The present tense cannot bear the weight that the translation keep on sinning places upon it. Our text here is correct. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. It's absolute. Now John just said in 5.16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, so how can he say just two verses later, that everyone born of God does not sin when he just said, if a brother, you see a brother committing a sin. Do you remember what I said? What we have to understand here in verse 18, John is speaking of a specific sin. He's talking about the sin of denying Christ, the sin of rejecting Christ. He is referring to the sin that leads to death from back up in verse 16, committed by the secessionists, those people who are opposing John's audience, the sin which the person who has been born of God cannot commit is the sin of rejecting Christ. They don't have a false Christology. Believers cannot commit this sin. That's important for us to understand. But see, because they don't understand it, they want to add, well, you can't continually sin. What does that mean? Can I sin somewhat? A little bit? It gets confusing. Now, commenting on verse 18, John MacArthur takes the translation, everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. And he writes this. So, so we've come back to the same issue. How do you tell if someone's a believer? You look at their life. Is that how I tell if someone's a believer or not? <laughs> I mean, I know he's not saying it's not about what you believe. But it's not about how we live. Why did John write, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. He didn't say, I write these things to you who live a holy, righteous life, so that you can know you have eternal life. Would that be comforting? No. Unless you have a high view of yourself that's not correct. You know, what about the Mormon missionaries? You know, they live pretty squeaky clean lives, don't they? I mean, they don't even drink coffee, okay? They don't, you know, they don't do anything they think might defile them in some way. And they live what most people would call a very sanctified life, but they don't know Christ. And they are committing the sin that leads to death. The rejection of Christ. So it's not about how you live as far as salvation goes. We are supposed to live righteously and holy. But it's because we believe that we know that we have eternal life. You can't go basing your assurance on your actions or you'll always be in turmoil. Let's compare 3.9 to 5.18. In 3.9 he says, everyone who's been born of God does not sin because the seed remains in him. And then in 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him. Now, in 3.9, the basis for the readers not sinning was that his seed remained in them. Here in 5.18, the basis is, is for their not sinning is put differently. He says, the one who is born of God keeps him. Now, in 3.9, John says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. He is not able to sin because his seed remains in him. The word for seed here is sperma. It's possible to take his seed to mean God's offspring, um, such a person cannot sin because he abides in God. But this interpretation is not too popular. Most commentators take seed to refer metaphorically to the divine principle of life which abides in the believer. There have been several theories as to what exactly the Greek phrase his seed means. Augustine and Luther said it referred to God's word. Calvin said it referred to the Holy Spirit. Others said it refers to the divine nature or the new self. Some say it refers to Christ himself as the seed of Abraham. Some see it as synonymous with the phrase born of God. Some say it was a term used by the Gnostic to speak of the divine spark in all humans. I think that the most likely possibility is that it refers to the Holy Spirit. And this view finds strong support in John 3.5 
where Yeshua said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here the concept of divine begetting is associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. When Yeshua told Nicodemus, unless a person is born, literally begotten or fathered, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The construction of the phrase in the Greek text indicates that the preposition of governs both water and Spirit. This means that Yeshua was clarifying regeneration by using two terms that both describe the new birth. He's not saying two separate things have to be present for regeneration to happen. Now, it seems best to understand the metaphor of God's seed residing in the believer in 3.9 as a reference to the indwelling Holy Spirit. He does not sin because the Holy Spirit's dwelling within him. He can't reject Christ. He can't commit this sin because he's a Christian. He has eternal life. With that in mind, I think in 5.18, John gives us uh, the reason why no one born of God sins as... He says, the one who is born of God keeps him. Now, like I said, this, this verse is a little difficult. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God doesn't sin. So Christians don't sin. That's born of God. But then he says, the one who's born of God keeps him. You're like, what is that talking about? There's a textual issue here, first of all. Let's deal with that. Some manuscripts have him, like the Christian Standard Bible does here, and some have himself like Young's literal does. It says, He who was begotten of God doth keep himself. Bruce Metzger, in a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, asserts that the manuscript variation is based on what the copyist thought the phrase born of God referred to. So we have two options here. One, it could refer to Yeshua, and that's autos, him, and manuscripts A and B would support that. Secondly, some say it, this refers to himself and it's a reference to believers. And then Heatu would best fit and Alpha and AC manuscripts would support that. The USB 4 gives number one a B rating as far as manuscripts go, and that means almost certain. So I think the manuscript evidence would go for him, referring to Christ and not that we're doing this ourselves. Now, in a great majority, though, of manuscripts, himself is found. Now, obviously, if it's himself, then he that is born of God keeps himself. Could not be a reference to our Lord, but if himself is genuine, then he that is born of God, the individual, keeps himself. So, he who is born of God refers to the believer who keeps himself from sin. Now, how's that sound to you? I would rather have the Lord keep me from sin than me keep me from sin. But, just talk, so you'll understand this, the New Testament does talk about believers keeping themselves. Alright? Paul said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's telling Timothy, keep a close eye, watch your teaching, guard what you're teaching and what you're teaching others, because through the teaching, through guarding yourself, you are going to save yourself and your hearers. James writes this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now there again, he says, keep yourself unstained from the world. And I think we all understand that. We have, there's something involved in ourselves, keeping ourselves living right, holy. Jude tells his readers this, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, keep yourselves in the love of God. That sounds a little strange, but the word keep here is the Greek word tereo, the same word that John uses in our text in 1 John 5.18. And tereo comes from teros, to guard or warden. It means to keep an eye on, to keep something in view, to hold firmly, to attend carefully, to watch over it. Yeshua uses this word in His prayer to the Father for His disciples. He says this, I'm no longer in the world, 
but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Toreo speaks of guarding something which is in one's possession. It means to keep watch as one would guard something precious. Keep in Jude 121 is an aorist imperative. It's a command calling for urgent attention. Now he's telling, keep yourselves. Yourselves here is heautu, and it's plural, indicating that Jude is addressing not just individuals, but the entire church, the entire church body. He's calling for the saints to keep themselves and keep themselves in the love of God. Now, in is the locative of sphere here, indicating that, as Weiss translates it, with, keep yourself within the sphere of God's love. What does that mean? Well, he is, saying, is he saying that we need to keep God loving us? No, that wouldn't work at all, all right? Look at what he says in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Yeshua the Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Yeshua the Christ. The word called here is from the Greek word kletos, which is a verbal adjective from kleo to call. Every time this term is used in the epistle and in Revelation, it means the same as chosen. It's a synonym for chosen. And it's the main word in this sentence. The other perfect passive participles are an apposition or explanation of the main one. And because we are called, we are beloved in God the Father and kept by Yeshua the Christ. That's the way you would understand the grammar here. We're called. And so we're loved and we're kept. Now, we know that once God loves and saves someone, once that God does the work of salvation in the life of a sinner, it means that that person has their sins forgiven. Past, present, and future. Every sin, every offense, every transgression, transgression that will ever be committed has been paid for. Put away. So Jude is not telling the believer to keep themselves saved. He's not saying, don't get yourself in a position where God will no longer love you. We know he's not saying that because in verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So he begins verse 1 with our security. He ends with our security. He's not questioning our security and telling us that we need to do something to stay saved. So Jude made it clear in verse 1 that the called are kept. And the word for kept in verse 1 here, is, and keep in verse 21, are the same exact Greek words. So in verse 21, Jude is telling those who are kept in Christ to keep themselves in the love of God. Barclay translates this, you must keep yourselves in the love of God. We says, with watchful care, keep yourselves within the sphere of God's love. Now, to keep yourselves in the love of God simply means keep yourself in the place where you experience the blessing that God's love brings. It means to stay in the sphere of God's love. John would say, stay abiding in Christ. William MacDonald writes this. I thought it was good. The love of God can be compared to sunshine. The sun is always shining. But when something comes between us and the sun, we're no longer in the sunshine. And keeping yourselves in the love of God requires consistent self-discipline on your part. You can never get out from under the love of God as far as God is concerned, but you can get out from under the blessing that God's love provides in your life when you move away from it. So what does it mean to be in the love of God? What do we do to keep ourselves in the love of God? Look at 1 John 5, 1-3. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Is that too concrete? Is that too... I don't know why, but people think this is difficult. All right, He explains very clearly this is the love of God. And then it doesn't say that you just have this warm, tingly feeling about God. It doesn't say that. 
It says, this is the love of God, that you keep His commandments, that you obey Him. Because when you love Him, you want to obey Him. It means you walk in obedience to His will. And when you remain obedient, you remain in the fullness of His love. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Who said that? Not me. That was Yeshua. All right? That is, he's saying, if you love me, do the will of God. Obey the Father. Obey what the Bible tells us. Be obedient. Don't be rebellious. Don't usurp the authority of the Word of God. God is admonishing us and encouraging us, keep yourselves in the sphere of God's love by walking in obedience. So when a believer walks in obedience, he is demonstrating that he loves Yahweh. And when we are obedient, we abide in His love. John 15.10 says, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Keep yourselves in the love of God is synonymous with walk according to commandments. Notice what Paul said to the Thessalonians. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing the will of God. You are doing and will do the things that we command you. All right, They're doing... They're going to keep doing what what they've been taught. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So God is telling us that the demonstration of a believer's love for God is in the keeping of His commandments. Now, what commandments? Is He talking about Torah here? Is He talking about the 613 laws in Torah? No. We better be glad about that, okay? 613. That's a lot of laws. As believer, we're under the law, not under the law of the Old Covenant. We're under the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one of those burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. We are to love Yahweh, the Lord our God, with all our heart. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're under the laws of the New Covenant. Alright, back to our text in 1 John. So the one who is born of God keeps him, or the one who is born of God keeps himself. So we have a number of manuscripts. I'm not going to read all the different manuscripts off, but it will be in the notes. They supply the reflexive pronoun himself in place of him in 5.18. A number of them do. But on the basis of the external evidence, that has a good possibility of being the original reading. But on the basis of internal evidence... It favors him as the more difficult reading since himself may be explained as a scribal attempt for grammatical smoothness. So the reference here in 5.18 to the one born of God keeps himself or keeps him is best interpreted as a reference to Yeshua himself. I don't think there's any doubt we are called to keep ourselves. We just looked at a bunch of verses. But I don't think this is what it's talking about in this thing because in the next phrase in here he's going to talk about the evil one all right and we're not keeping ourselves the lord keeps them that's the issue here so i think it's best interpreted as a reference to yeshua himself that this is an appropriate interpretation is supported by the fact that in the fourth gospel yeshua is portrayed as the one who keeps his disciples safe and we're all familiar with that and yeshua's prayer in john 17 he speaks of having kept safe all those that the lord had given him John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So he says, I've kept them, I've guarded them. Now the earliest manuscripts have with them. While I was with them, but few earlier manuscripts than that um, have the idea of with them in the world. And so there's some debate about, I was with them. It's not a big deal because verse 13 talks about that anyway, so no big deal there. But Yeshua says, I kept tereo them in your name. I've guarded them. So Yeshua had kept these disciples loyal to God. He had guarded them from the external attacks while He was with them. The word guarded here is from the Greek word phulaso, which means to protect from outside threats. It's used in Luke 11 of a strong man guarding a house. It's used in Acts 28 of soldiers guarding Paul. 
We see this guarding in action in chapter 18 of John. He says, so he asked them, remember the, the army comes to take the Lord and they want to arrest him. And so he asked them, who do you seek? Okay, let me, who's the warrant for? All right, I'm trying to make sure he's really clear on what's happening here. And they said, Yeshua of Nazareth. <clears throat> so Yeshua answered them, I told you I am. Stop, I am. <laughs> okay, I told you I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. So when they came to arrest the Lord, they also wanted to arrest the disciples, and the Lord never let that happen. He protects them from that. The imagery here is suggestive of the Good Shepherd imagery of John chapter 10, especially verses 27 through 30. Yeshua is the Good Shepherd who protects his sheep. John 17, 12, he says, No one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction. None of the ones that the Father had given him, none of the given has perished. None of them. Earlier, Yeshua said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So Yeshua guarded, he protected his disciples except the one who was destined to be lost. Now the literal translation is except the son of perishing. And the somatic expression in the literal Greek text is a play on words to perish. It's uh, no one has perished except the son of perishing would be a way to do that. This is a reference to Judas. We're aware of that. He says, the one who is born of God keeps him. The word born here is an heir of passive participle, which implies a completed act accomplished by an outside agent. I think this is a reference here to the incarnation. All right, We know that everyone born of God, that's the Christian, does not sin, but the one born of God, the one who became a man the one at the incarnation, he keeps him. The verb used here for was born is not used elsewhere for Yeshua. And that's what makes this complicated because people see that, well, it's never, he's never said anywhere else called the one born of God. And I agree with that. But I just think it's, that's how John does things, man. He is very, uh, he, <laughs> he leaves a lot to interpretation, okay? All right, the second verb here, tereo, the one who is born of God keeps him is a present active indicative with him, Auton. And this is literally the one who was born of God continues to keep him. This is a reference to Christ's continual sustaining of the believer. Now this translation follows the ancient Greek unical manuscripts of A and B. And this interpretation is found in the English translations of NASB, RSV, ESV, CSB, and NIV. It's amazing, the NIV got in with the good ones there. <laughs> But the one who is born of God keeps him. This is the work of Christ who holds on to believers, who keeps believers. He keeps believers from ever falling away from him, ever falling back into Satan's kingdom. Preservation is as guaranteed as justification. When he justifies someone, he gives them eternal life. He preserves them. All who are justified will be glorified. Look what Paul says in Romans 8. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we see here the unbroken chain. It goes from predestination, God choosing, to God calling, to justifying, to glory. There's no out there, people. All those He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Nobody gets lost along the way. And Paul's question here, if God's for us, who can be against us? Expects a negative answer. Okay? Uh, No one. If God's for us, what do you care who's against you? When Paul says, if God be for us, he's not saying maybe he is and maybe he isn't. In the original text, it's a first class condition. It can be translated since. Since God is for us, or because he's for us, there's no truth more fundamental in all of God's word than this truth, people. God is for us. 
Because of Yeshua, the question is settled once and for all. God is for us. All that God is, all that God has, all that God does, He does on behalf of His people. Now notice Yeshua's prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am, to see My glory that You have given Me because You love Me before the foundation of the world. Do you see what this verse is saying? Yeshua is saying that He desires that all the Father has given Him, the elect, be with Him in heaven. Okay? He says, Father, I desire. Now, the word desire here is the Greek word thelo. And thelo is often used in the New Testament to simply mean a wish. And there are many instances where it means essentially that. But in this context, though almost all the students of the Gospel of John agreed that it means something far more than that here, and as often does other places, such as in Matthew 8, 2 and 3, he says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Yeshua stretched out his hand, and he touched him and said, I will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. He didn't mean, I wish. He meant, I will. In other words, this word is a word that expresses often the determination of our Lord. The will of our Lord as over against a wish. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, and that's, by the way, is John 17. Okay? That's the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's in a very strong way. He says, Father, I will, in the sense that it's the intent of His position. Not simply a wish, but the expression of His will of the Savior. Which raises the question, does the Son will something different from the Father? No. So, he's when He says, I will, that's the same thing the Father will. Right? Hopefully you know that answer is no. He's not going to will something different than the Father. Look at John 4.34. Yeshua said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's a declaration of Yeshua's priorities. Yeshua was speaking figuratively of the substance that comes from doing the will of God. John 5.19 Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... The Son does likewise. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. In Yeshua, we see Yahweh. Whatever Yeshua did was an act of Yahweh. Whatever Yeshua said was the word of Yahweh. There was no moment of His life and no action in which He did not express the life and action of the Father. That's why He said, "Who He who has seen Me has seen the Father. In John 5.30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Yeshua's point was that He could not do anything independently of the Father. His judgments are the result of listening to the Father. His judgment is just because the desire for self-glory doesn't taint it. The Son's will is totally to advance the Father's will. John 6.38 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The purpose of the incarnation was that the Son would fulfill the Father's will. The Son will not act independently of the Father, but only in submission to the Father. And since Yeshua's desire or will was identical with the Father's will, we know He gets His prayers answered. Right? I mean, that we're promised that. If I pray according to the will of God, God will answer our prayers. We know Yeshua always prayed according to the will of God. So when He prays, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, be with Me where I am. Listen, believers, Christ's will for the believers is that we'll be with Him where He is, with the Father in heaven, we'll be there to see His glory. You see what's happening here? Yeshua is praying us into heaven. We're going to heaven. That's a promise. The reason that promise is fulfilled and the means for that to be fulfilled is the intercessory prayer of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. 
He prayed for us to be there. His prayers are answered. This is one of the most magnificent, magnificent statements of the security of the believer in Christ that we have in all the Bible. I mean, if anyone has any question about whether having believed in the Lord Yeshua, you're safe and secure, if you'll just think of this prayer, we should ease all your problems forever because if Yeshua prayed that you would be with Him in heaven, you will be. Now, the simplest idea of heaven is simply to be where Yeshua is. That's what heaven is. Not so much uh, defined as a place as it is a person. It is the magnificent thing to think that a Lord has prayed for us before we were ever born. Before we were ever born, He prayed that we would be with Him in glory, that all that the Father had given Him would be with Him. He prayed for those who are believing, and furthermore, He also acknowledged that we have been given, and actually He committed us to the Father for the Father's keeping before we'd ever been born. What a magnificent thing that is. What a sense of security it gives to know. Yeshua desire, His desire is that we be with Him and the, with the Father in heaven. And nothing will ever stop that desire from coming to pass. Believers, that's eternal security. All right? Through the years, the subject of eternal security has been hotly debated in theology. I'm not sure why. Okay? There are people who have always believed, and many who still believe, that uh, salvation, which is guaranteed by Christ, can be lost. I don't know who, how did you get it? Did you earn it? If you earned it, I guess you could lose it. But it's a gift from God, how are you going to lose it? I think that an in-depth study of the Lord's prayer here would help people to see that, you know, that's, that's not something that's going to happen. All right? He's very clear about that in this prayer. Look at John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we can't snatch them from His hand. You can't snatch them from His Father's hand. (laughs) To strengthen the idea of security, He says, can't snatch them out of the Father's hand or my hand. So when the Father gives His sheep into the omnipotent hand of the Son, they're still in His hand. They're not going anywhere. In 10.12 He says, For who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep? He sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The word here for snatches is the same word that is translated snatch In John 10.29, no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Concerning this text, A.W. Pink says, No stronger passage in all the Word of God can be found guaranteeing the absolute security of every child of God. All right, back to our text. The one who's born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The word keeps here is the word used to refer to a garrison of soldiers that guards a fort. And the picture is that Yeshua the Christ is the Son of God. He guards our hearts. This view that Christ keeps us appears to be the most probable in terms of both syntax and sense. It makes God the protector of the Christian rather than the Christian himself, which fits the context much better. There's a precedent in Johannian literature for such syntactical structure. So it makes sense that that's what's happening here. He's, and then he goes... He, finishes this verse by saying the evil one does not touch him. The words the evil one here are from the Greek word paneros, which is a word that could be neuter or could be masculine in gender. It may represent the neuter, that which is evil, or the masculine, the evil one. But in almost every case in which this expression occurs, it's a reference to a personal masculine evil one And that's the most likely meaning here. Now the reference to the evil one elsewhere in 1 John, they all refer to the devil as it is here. The evil one is used in John 17, 15 as a reference to Satan. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. So Yeshua is praying for his disciples to be protected from Satan. Will his prayers be answered? Absolutely. Okay, and that's why I think, you know, he says, does not touch him. This is a present middle indicative, which means the evil one cannot continually lay hold of him. The only other use of this term in John's writing is in the Gospel. The word that's used here is the same word that the Lord uses for Mary after His resurrection. When He met her in the garden and Mary went up and grabbed the whole of them and He said, Yeshua said to her, do not cling to Me. Some translations have touch here. It doesn't mean, oh, don't, don't, touch, you know, don't touch Me. She was clinging to Him. She did not want to let Him go. Don't cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and Your Father, My God and Your God. The word cling here is a good translation. This word literally means to hang on to. Don't cling to me now, Mary. And this is what the devil wanted to do to John's readers. He wanted to cling to them. So when John says that the evil one does not touch him, he doesn't mean that they're completely isolated from Satan's attacks. Paul told the Ephesians to put on the armor of God because they were in a spiritual battle. He means that Satan will never get the victory over them. And see, that's why I think that that he that is born of God keeps him as a better reference to Christ because he says the evil one doesn't touch him. So that's not us doing that, keeping the evil one. It's the Lord. So Satan, the evil one, was the prince of the world. Yeshua refers to Satan as the prince of this world three times in John's Gospel. And in 1 John 5.19, Lazarus reminds us that the whole world is under the evil one. So... Who or what is this evil one? Well, believe it or not, there's a lot of debate on this subject. There really is. When it comes to spirit beings such as Satan, the devil, and demons, and unclean spirits, there's basically three different positions. And we'll look at them next week. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank You for the opportunity to spend some time together in Your Word today. Lord, I thank You for the truth that Yeshua, Your Son, keeps us. That He has prayed for us that we might be with Him in heaven. Father, the security of the believer is so clearly laid out in Scripture. And I pray that You would give each and every one of us an understanding of this truth. That we would have security. That we would have confidence. That we would have peace knowing that if we have trusted You, our life is secure in Your hands. Protected by You forever and always. Thank You, Lord, for the joy that security brings, for the peace that it brings. We love You, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions or comments? Anthony. Yes, when you were stating about the Romans 8, he predestined and he called and justified and glorified. That last one, glorified, is just for his glory. The glorified is to be in the presence of God. Okay. okay. That's what he's talking about by glorified there. I got a text from Zoe. It says, I see you found a replacement. <laughs> no, Zoe, we didn't replace you. We couldn't replace you. You're not, you're not replaceable. Zoe. That's right. Anybody else? We done? I have got a question for you. Yes. Uh, I may be understanding this wrong, but it, it, in that verse 18, which is that everyone who has been born of God, seems like to me, it sounds like everyone, speaking of the believers, uh, but then you interpreted the thing, uh, uh, but the one who is born of God, me referring to Christ, right? right? Yes. But does that make sense in the first, in the first sentence? In the first phrase, will we know that Christ, who has been born of God, is that is that would that be? Do you understand? I don't know if I follow you. The, the first time it's used, who's ever born of God does not commit sin. That's talking about the Christian, right? Okay. And then I, I'm telling you, this is difficult because then it switches. He was born of God, keeps him. I and mean, we just used born of God of believers. Now he's using born of God of Christ, and that's where the difficulty comes in. 
And that's why a lot of people want to say, well, uh, instead of saying him, it's himself there. But I, I'm saying that the manuscript evidence is stronger and better for him, Christ keeping us, and especially with the last part of the verse about the evil one not touching us, it fits better with Christ doing that, even though using born again of Christ is only used in that text, if it is using it of Christ. It's not used elsewhere that way. But that, again, that's not that unusual for John to do that. Did that answer your question? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Well, how about um, when it says whoever is born of God does not sin, he does not reject Christ because he's kept. So how does the apostate fall under there? I mean, if he, I, I understand salvation, of course, is, is eternal, but they have, in a sense, rejected Christ. So is what's being kept their ultimate salvation then, eternal? Yeah, I think that, you know, the idea of, um, you know, the, the fifth point of Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints, I think maybe it'd be better translated the preservation of the saints. I mean, God keeps uh-huh. us, okay? It doesn't mean we're always going to be doing the right thing. And I think mm-hmm. there is such a case where people walk away from the Lord, mm-hmm. all right, commit apostasy. But this this text says they're not committing the sin unto death. They can't commit the sin unto death because they already have life. But even if they think they have, well, they can. They can. I mean, again, I mean, I if get once it, you receive not. life from Christ, that's a done deal. That's final. You know, people, we couldn't talk about eternal life. We could, you know, if we thought we could lose it. All right? It's temporary life, right? You got the 10-year plan, the 15-year plan. No, it's eternal. If it's eternal, and you get it at faith, then you got it. And it's not going to change. Amen. So much of the church makes salvation all about us and what we do. You know, salvation is to bring glory to God because it's His work. It's His grace that reaches out to us and makes us His children. Cassidy, you had a question? <laughs> <laughs> I just saw you sitting there. I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Wait a minute. I got some text here. Okay, good question. Uh, one of the readers asked, you mentioned in the notes. Where can I find a copy of the notes? Where can they find those, Jeff? Okay, <laughs> although they're not quite up to date at this moment... They're usually a couple weeks behind, but when you go to the website and it lists the message, the notes are on there, incomplete, not incomplete, (laughs) the notes are completely on there, okay, there's audio up there and there's video up there. So everything, you know, I've had people write me and say, I wish I could get some notes for this. I'm like, they're on the website, everything is there. It's like no matter what we try to do to make it clear, it's just, you know, it doesn't get clear enough. But yes, if you go to our website and like go to wherever you want to go, all right, to go into the, you know, 1 John, and when you click on, you know, one of the messages, you can either read it, you can listen to it, or you can watch it. So everything is there. So, so yeah, so the notes for today will... Eventually be there. Yeah, it'll eventually be there, but it takes a little while because I send... My notes off to Judy Peterson, who edits them. She sends them back to me, then I send them to Jeff, and then when Jeff gets around to it, he puts them on the website. But that's for the reading. That's for the reading. Right, that's for the reading. Now, the video will go up, I mean, as soon as the service is over today, at 1 o'clock, it will go on live stream, okay? And you can watch it again on live stream, the whole service. Later on tonight, Right, Jeff usually has the video up Sunday night, and so the video and the audio are up usually that night or the next day. So, yeah, that gets up pretty quick. But the, the audio is on the, on the RSS feed, so if you're subscribed via podcast, that usually goes up tonight too, and then it all appears on the website once the transcription is received. Right. So then all three go on the website. Once we get the transcripts back edited, they go to Jeff. Jeff puts them on the site, and then all the notes are there. So. 
That's a long answer to a short question, but <laughs> that's what I mean by the notes. But I, that's a good question because I know that a lot of people probably wonder that. Someone's asking, do you think in the future you can talk about the rise of Wiccans and such? Seems like it's becoming mainstream and the First Amendment appears to be defending it. Marv. Um, we might talk about that next week in some sense, this whole idea. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. If you're paying attention to the news, you notice that child traffickers, child pornographers are being arrested daily. You're <laughs> like a butcher's dog. It, it's amazing. I mean, just, you know, what's funny is, is right after Ghislaine Maxwell got arrested in custody, all of a sudden they started hitting all these, you know, places and arresting people like crazy. All right. Trump, since he's been in office, one of his main goals is to shut down child trafficking. And I mean, they have found so many kids already. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. And he's not done. I mean, Operation Legend is pushing on and they are making arrests and putting these people in prison and getting these children free. So that's great. But a lot of these child traffickers use children for human sacrifice. All right? I mean, there's all sickness in this world right now that is just unbelievable. How do they get these children to Well, they breed them. They, they actually breed children. They have people that breed these kids for them. They use small, or they just snatch them up, you know. And, I mean, you really got to watch kids, you know. And it's just, you think, well, they're looking for a certain, I mean, from birth on. I mean, it's just, it, it really is a sick situation. I just read something yesterday that said they just found a container with, I think it was 64 people in it that they were getting ready to ship overseas from here. People or children? Children. There are people, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the battle rages on, but there's some sick people out there doing some sick things, and being shut down left and right and I'm loving it and there's going to be a lot more indictments going out and people are going to be arrested and put an end to this stuff. that's part of the reason for building the wall people the child traffickers can't get back and forth across the border now it's, it's cut down their finances it's doing a lot of damage so